Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. And I'm Jackie Valley, assistant editor, also down in Las Vegas. Oh my gosh, there is a third person in the intro, Jacob. <laughs> it's a rogue Jackie Valley sighting. <laughs> Hello, Jackie. Jackie is our editor. She is the one that makes sure that the podcast is good because otherwise I'd be the only person listening to it and there'd be lots of errors. <laughs> so um, we just had uh, our big Indie Fest. I guess I should address this is a little bit of a different intro than normal, and it's because we just had our big event, Indie Fest, um, which has a ton of different panels. And uh, we also had a governor debate, which is a huge deal. Yeah, so Indie Fest is our third annual conference. It's uh, very policy and politics focused, as we are normally on our site. Um, but it's a chance to bring a lot of different folks together and talk about some of the pertinent issues of the day. So. This past weekend, it was full of discussions about everything from water and cannabis to education and the upcoming elections. Um, and so as Joey mentioned, I would say like the marquee event was a town hall style debate featuring the candidates for governor. Yeah. And so um, we're going to get to that debate. We're going to get to some highlights from that debate. Um, but before we do that, uh, the three of us each wanted to bring you one uh bit from one of the panels that we liked. Um, and so, Jackie, I think you're going to start with this, right? Yes. So first, we are bringing you a segment from a panel featuring Sandra Douglas Morgan. Um, if you aren't already familiar with that name, you probably will be over time. She's recently been named the president of the Raiders, the Las Vegas Raiders, making her the first female president of any NFL team. So kind of a big deal. And she grew up in Las Vegas. Um, she previously served on the Nevada State Athletic Commission, and was also recently chairwoman of the Nevada Gaming Control Board. So she's made the jump to the sports world. She joined Nevada Independent CEO John Ralston and reporter Howard Stutz for a wide-ranging interview on Saturday morning. You, you could essentially do whatever you want. I'm, I'm, more, I'm more curious why this attracted you? Was, was there a certain challenge? Was it something totally different that you thought, it, thought would be fun? What, what is the reason? Well, I, I think fun and challenging is absolutely, I, I love, I mean, I, with, with what I've been able to do, I definitely don't run from challenges, so I enjoy it. But I had an amazing year last year, to be honest with you. I, you know, the firm I was with was great. It was very flexible. Obviously, there was a pandemic, so I was kind of you know, working from home most of the time. The boards that I have the privilege to serve on still have the privilege to serve on two of them. Um, just amazing chairman all the way around and also fellow board members. It was really a great time in my life. Um, but the Raiders, I mean, that is something that has just not only just a mystique, but just a bold, strong legacy of um, not only a commitment to excellence, but willing to be bold and take risks on things. And to be able to lead an NFL team in the, in the city that I grew up in, that is, you know, I, I've said before that people would say, is this your dream? It wasn't even a dream because I didn't even see it to be even to even think that it was something that I could achieve. So, um, and, and to be honest too, my husband, when I was talking to him about this opportunity, he was not the most objective person because <laughs> he played for the Vikings and the Cardinals. And so he was like, what, what are we talking about here? And I was like, okay, you're not, you know, I kind of went to then to my family and friends on, on just consulting as to whether or not this would be the right move for me. But ultimately at the end of the day, it was really about my discussion um, with Mark Davis and understanding him more, his vision, um, how he viewed this transition to Las Vegas and what his long-term goals were here. I want to get on sports pain a little bit because you, I mentioned you were appointed to the commission in April of 2018. A month later is when the Supreme Court ruled that allowed all the U.S. to open up sports betting 
you know, legally. Now, as the president of the, the Raiders, have you had conversations with the NFL? And I'm curious what your thoughts are. The NFL handled this. I mean, this has been a lot going on with, with sports. I grew up here. You know, my mother was a Kino runner. I grew up going to and, and you know, seeing, you know, the little arcade that used to be the little smoky arcade that was in, you know, every kind of casino. And so and I'm used to going to 7-Elevens or convenience stores and seeing that. So I um, when uh, when I was a commissioner and the and understood the very strong positions and not just the NFL, but other leagues were taking on sports betting. I realized that, um, you know, the great regulatory system that we've had in place since the 50s here obviously did not exist in other states. And the concern was obviously the integrity of the game, which should be the first and foremost concern um, for any athlete, any sport. But I, I definitely am leaning into the opportunity to be able to explain and, and kind of give a regulated gambling um, perspectives um, to other, whether it be presidents, team owners, and the, and the league as well. And I think they're going to be definitely open to that. Um, yeah, they took a very, very hard line um, pre-PASPA um, repeal on that. And I, can, I, and I can understand why now being on this side of things, because as soon as people don't think the game is fair, there's issues. I mean, look how people talk to referees. My goodness, if they think there's something that's improper with gambling involved, that really could affect, you know, the strength and the health of the league. So the next clip we wanted to bring you was one from our panel on the state of cannabis in Nevada. One of the panelists was Aisha Goins, who's an author, an advocate, and a business coach who created an organization that's aimed at breaking the stigma that African-Americans have around issues of cannabis use and decriminalization. Here, you're going to hear Elizabeth ask about the unlicensed market and why Aisha uses that word rather than illegal or illicit. Earlier when we were chatting backstage, uh, I think I was the one who first said illegal or illicit market. And you immediately protested and said, nope, don't like that word. Unlicensed is the word I prefer to use. Tell, tell everyone why that is, and, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the unlicensed market. I like to use the word unlicensed market. Um, because the industry hasn't done a good job of creating pathways for those persons with innovation and creativity. So if we, you can't say that they're illegal because if there was a place where, let's say, they were creating a new shower cap, they would just be innovative and creative, creating a new shower cap, trying to master that so that they can get that into Target or Walmart. Well, if we're saying that cannabis is an industry in the state of Nevada, is an illegal industry, and you have creative and innovative persons out there trying to get into the industry, they're just unlicensed. It's not illicit, it's not illegal, because they don't have any pathway. So until, it's really the industry's fault that they can't get into the industry. It's not the new business owner or the innovation or the creator. Now, I do recognize that I'm sure that the licensees aren't thinking about the young man. I always think about the young man that I know personally. He wants to get his weed smoothies into the lounges. I'm sure they're not thinking about that person. But the unfortunate part is those, those language, that language has become a key marker for media and for persons to only see that person. They don't see the big warehouse that's packing and cleared out all of the rooms and growing weed. They don't see the gang, big gang people growing weed or selling weed or transporting hundreds of thousands of pounds from California. That's not how media and the regular person sees that word when you use it. They see the young man 
who just wants his smoothies into the marketplace. So I push back because I want to make sure that we're consistently thinking about that stigma. And I come from the human side of cannabis, not always the industry, even though I do come from industry. You know, I was also a person who started this industry. They would, what do they call them, pioneers? I would just say I worked in the dispensary, I opened a dispensary, right? But I did, you know, I was one of the persons who worked on the counter, worked in management, opened one of the first dispensaries here. And so I know what this I know what this is like. And there weren't a lot of people that were like me in this industry. And we have to do better about that. We need to be thinking about that. Yeah, cool. And so uh, our last panel that we're going to talk about today. We're going to have some more for you next week, but for today, we are talking about uh, water. Obviously, it's been a huge issue here in the state, um, especially the Colorado River in Southern Nevada. And so uh, our own reporter, Daniel Rothberg, as well as our editor, Elizabeth Thompson, were on a panel with several people, and you're going to hear from two of them now. You're going to hear from uh, Professor Elizabeth Koble, who's a political science professor from UNR uh, with a focus on environmental policy. And then we're also going to hear a little bit later in the quote from John Ensminger, the chief of the Southern Nevada Water Authority, which is a regulatory body that oversees parts of the Colorado River and Lake Mead in Southern Nevada. Nevada has done a good job in securing its Colorado River supply. At the same time, it's a part of this larger Colorado River picture and the crisis at Lake, at Lake Mead and as part of getting to these cuts that the federal government has called for. I'm curious if you, you could sort of tell our audience, why is it so difficult to bring all of these partners and entities together? The Colorado River system is managed by such a diversity of actors across so many levels. Um, I also think that we have competing uses over a resource that's critical for all of our livelihoods and at its core that's one of the most challenging problems on the Colorado River. So we are providing water to municipalities but as Pat mentioned we have a vibrant agricultural community in the Colorado River. I also think that in this particular moment, this, we're talking about kind of this panel, the crisis on the Colorado River, um, one of the things that I think a lot about is the timeline of that crisis. Um, we are having to deal with these immediate challenges right now. Um, you know, whether it's thinking about if we're gonna release water from Powell to Mead or if we need to hold back water to protect infrastructure in Lake Powell. Um, while we're also thinking about these really long-term challenges. So policymakers on the Colorado River are in the beginning stages of a really complex renegotiation process for some of the major rules that govern the Colorado River and having to balance these short-term crises and responses that are completely necessary with also thinking about those long-term governance strategies way past you know, 20 years from now, um, that, that's a really hard position to be in. With these broader negotiations going on, what's sort of on the table right now, and how do you see it affecting Nevada, potentially? Well, there, there's a lot of posturing yeah. going on right, yeah. right now. Every user on the river 
uh, has well-worn talking points about why their use is critical, uh, what the horrific impacts to their community will be if they're made to, to cut back, and that's mostly what you hear about. You don't hear people volunteering of how they're going to contribute to uh, the problem. Agricultural rural areas from these big cutbacks really are going to, to be difficult. So that's where you get into the rubber meat in the road of, there's no choice, right? We, we do actually have to reduce because as complex as the politics are, as complex as the legalities are, the math is pretty simple. If, if we don't make those two to four million acre feet in reductions, Lake Powell is gonna go to Deadpool and could do that within the next you know, 12 months. Uh, Lake Mead will get to Deadpool, and then, you know, then IID isn't cutting back 10% or 20%, they go to zero. 100% of their water supply comes uh, from the Colorado River, and then that entire economy, you know, is, is, is gone. So yeah, that was, that was part of IndieFest. Uh, Jackie, you were there. How, how was it in the studio? Yeah, it had great energy yesterday. I was in the studio um, in Las Vegas where the debate was held. Roughly 90-minute debate, so it was, they did cover a lot of ground, so it was interesting to be there and hear directly from them. Uh, a real uh, valuable opportunity for voters to get a real inside look at what Sisolak and Lombardo actually believe. So without further ado, here's a short bit of that debate. You can find coverage of the entire thing on our website, thenevadaindependent.com, and more details on viewing it online later this week. I want to welcome uh, Governor Steve Sisolak. He's a Democrat, and Joe Lombardo, the sheriff of Clark County. He's a Republican. I want to say, first of all, gentlemen, we really appreciate your willingness to debate. We're going to start with what I think a lot of people would agree is the most important issue in this state, and that's education. So let me start with you, Sheriff. Do teachers in Nevada deserve a raise? Yes. Absolutely. How much? Well, I mean, you got when on the police department, we base it off the CPI, two to three percent on an annual basis, and I think it should be commensurate to, in similar fashion with that. Um, yeah, the governor provided a raise three years ago, and inflation is, you know, eliminated that raise, and I think it's important that they have a livable wage so they can even purchase a house to live in here in the state. You know, affordable housing, I'm sure you're going to ask about it, is a key issue, and that is a, a direct reflection upon our first responders and our, our teachers and our seniors and everything else that goes along with it. So are you saying that you think they only should get, if you became governor, you'd give them a 2 or 3% raise? Uh, or? It depends on what the CPI and what the negotiations um, um, bring forward and what's an affordable wage um, and an answer to that question. Uh, that's all part of the negotiations. Um, how would you pay for it? Well, we'll figure it out with the existing budget. I believe, you know, right now there's $800 million surplus in the general fund. In the stabilization fund on the education, there's $400 million. Um, there's, a ways, there's ways within the existing budget streams to, to pay for it. Governor, same question. Do, do teachers deserve a raise? Absolutely. We gave them a, a raise in my first term. We definitely want to give them a significant raise in the second term. John, I have traveled this state and spoken to hundreds, if not thousands, of teachers. There's not one teacher in the classroom today that couldn't make more money doing something else. They teach because they love the discipline of teaching. They love the students. They love the interaction with teaching. 
But it shouldn't be that they can't afford things. I met a young couple up in, in Reno at a coffee shop and said, Governor, we love, love teaching. This is the best job in the world, but on two teacher salaries, we will never be able to afford to buy a home. Because as soon as we save enough money, the prices go up. How much should they get, Governor? If, you, if, you're, if you're Governor again in 2023, what's the raise you'll propose for them? Well, we need to do two things. One, we need to start the, uh, increase the starting wage, which will affect more teachers coming into the, uh, into the discipline, into the teaching profession. But also, teachers that have been there for 5, 10, 15 years deserve a raise. So I would think that the raise needs to be more than the 2 or 3% to catch up with inflation a little bit. Now, I can't commit to an exact number, but I would say it would be north of 3%. You have been endorsed by and embraced Donald Trump. Uh, Sheriff, he's coming, to, he's coming to do an event for you in a, in a few weeks. Um, you think he was a great president? I wouldn't use that adjective. I wouldn't say great. I think he was a sound president. I think he had policies um, that he brought forward that was beneficial to the country and, and supported the country and moved the country forward versus backwards. And under the current tutelage of uh, President Biden, we're going backwards, in my opinion. I mean, we look at the inflation and the interest rates and the policy uh, ideas and procedures and, you know, the, the fund, the, 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 the treasurer and everything else that goes along with a successful government. It, it's abysmal failure, abysmal failure. And, and in my opinion, Trump moved the country forward. He's also said unequivocally that the election was stolen, that the election in Nevada was rigged, and yet that doesn't bother you enough? Oh, no, no, it bothers me. It bothers me. I'm not shying away from that. Well, but you, I, I but you still think I it's okay? I by him in that aspect. You're making it sound like it's a minor thing. Uh, no, it, it's not a minor thing. I think there is some modicum of fraud in any election, um, but shouldn't we have mechanisms in place to address even that modicum and the confidence of the voter um, in the system. He undermined the, the confidence of the voters, yes, he did. right? Didn't he? You know, you, you're never going to agree with anybody 100% in everything they do. Um, there, even in my own party, there's people that don't agree with 100% of what I present forward. But, you know, you got to look at the totality of the person and, and their ideas and, and their leadership and support it in that aspect because you're never going to have the perfect candidate in your own mind. You don't think the election was rigged, right? No, I do not. I think there was a modicum of fraud, but nothing to change the election. Okay. I want, to, I want you to talk about Joe Biden. I thought it was about Donald Trump. No, you t you're talking about Joe Biden. I think Joe Biden inherited a lot of problems from Donald Trump that he's working through. What happened on January 6th, the insurrection, is something that I think drove a wedge in this country that is uh, really disappointing. It's pulling people apart as opposed to putting people together. Uh, a lot of what is being, you know, he's being accused of these inflation situations are not necessarily his fault. I mean, he doesn't control the price of gasoline no more than I control the price of chicken and ground beef at the stores. So I think that the president has done well with what he's been presented with. He's continuing to move forward, and it's tough decisions he's had to make. Uh, many polls show fewer than 40% of the people in Nevada uh, have a, a, a good feeling about Joe Biden, but you still have a good feeling about Joe Biden. I think that he has done well with what he was given. 
I do believe that. I Have you asked him to come campaign for you down the home stretch? No, but I can tell you uh, he's welcome to come to the state of Nevada. He's welcome to come to any state in the country. He has given us billions of dollars. We have an infrastructure meeting, which I'm glad you brought that up, John. I didn't bring up an infrastructure meeting. No, no, but you brought up President Biden delivering to the state of Nevada. He's delivered billions of dollars to the state of Nevada to fix our roads, our bridges, our schools, our hospitals, create thousands of good-paying jobs, and I'm thankful for that. You don't like how the governor's doled out all, all this American no, rescue I don't. Grant. Why not? You know, People need the money, Sheriff. He, yeah, but he also said he can't control inflation, and he said the president can't control inflation, and inflation is based on giveaway money. I mean, there's been a significant, to the tune of uh, several billion dollars, been given away across the nation. Yeah, some of it's been beneficial, but they're shying away with the increased inflation as a result of. You think, the you think inflation is... It. You think the inflation in this country is caused by all of the money that's being, that's being doled yeah, out from the absolutely. American Rescue Plan? Absolutely. You think that's right? No. I mean, obviously the sheriff doesn't understand, and I understand, he doesn't, has been educated on this maybe, the intricacies of what caused inflation. Yes, we have more dollars chasing fewer goods, but there's a situation that the country is in right now when you're talking about supply chain issues, you're talking about issues of war overseas, you're talking about different things that all lead into that. Inflation is more controlled by our Federal Reserve Board and the president and all presidents are supposed to keep a distance from that and not influence the policies. I, I want to switch gears in the time that we have left. What are you going to do as governor to help all these people with the affordable housing? It comes up all, over and over again. And the practices of landlords, there, there is something in Nevada called the rapid summary eviction process uh, that a lot of people think is predatory. What are you going to do about it? We've got to look at the, the overall structure, John. We have to do something about corporate landlords who have come in and bought up thousands of homes and thousands of dwelling units. Because what had happened is when the interest rates got down to zero and a half and one percent, these big hedge funds couldn't get any return on their money. So they came in and they bought tremendous amounts of residential property. They put in rental companies, they put in repair companies, and they raised those rates. And now that, that some of that property is coming back on the market because interest rates are going up and these hedge funds are going back into the financial markets. But we need to come up with a plan so that corporate landlords cannot dictate the price of rent to the extent that they're doing what, What's right the now. plan? Tell us your plan. I think that we need to look at the abatement procedure that exists for uh, multifamily units and non, non-owner dwelled units. Uh, as it is right now, you know, there's a 3 and an 8%. Uh, cap on those, and we need to look at if it's used for investment purposes only, and you get over a certain threshold, maybe we should look at what that abatement is. So, Sheriff, we have a couple minutes left, uh, and I want to give credit to Ben Kruger of Reno, one of our uh, readers who came up with these questions about housing, including just the very simple one. I mean, what are you going to do about the lack of affordable housing? Well, it's a supply and demand issue, right? It's, it's land, 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 and you have to have affordable land in order to have affordable housing. You know, in the current plan that the governor has with the federal money coming forward, the $500 million to affordable housing attached to PLAs, you know, that just doesn't pencil out for a building. Project labor agreements right. that, that you're referring to. Yeah, it just Isn't that great, though, that they, we got all this money and then now we're going to be able to build more affordable housing? That's great. Yeah, but, but if the land is, is not affordable, it doesn't pencil out. And so the number of available units goes from 5,000 per se to 2,500 because of all those restrictions. I think it's important that we, we have negotiations with the, the local counties and, and the trust of their land, uh, the state and the trust of their land, and the BLM availability of land and defer the costs on the front end versus the back end um, on payment for that land to make it more affordable and it pinches out for the builders so we can have the availability for affordable housing. So 
you let the market decide, but you have to try to affect the market? I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the legislation would look like. Well, the, 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 the trust, when I was talking about in the county and the state, they have land that they have already encumbered. It's on their books. Uh, give away that land. Give it to, you know, whatever it is, a dollar, whatever it may be, so it pencils out for the builders. So here you have a chance, uh, Sheriff. Uh, clarify your position. What is your position on abortion? Well, you know, it's unfortunate uh, Governor doesn't have enough respect for the voters to, to realize that it's codified in law, all right? 20, 24 um, is the number, and it's codified in law. There's nothing that the governor can do to change it. There's nothing I, that I can do to change it. And, and to keep uh, nipping away at snippets that is nothing more than political theater and not telling the whole story. So the Channel 8 interview, there were three questions in succession together. That's right. And I answered the parental notification one. I didn't clarify the first two questions, so there was a, a leap and an assumption that I didn't support um, the, uh, the contraceptive piece on that. It just referenced the truck outside, the, the, the kids game truck outside, that I don't support uh, contraceptive. That's absolutely false. I do support contraceptive. I do support parental notification, and with the exceptions of rape and incest. And, 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 and as far as abortion, I have no intentions of readdressing the issue or the... the well, why did you say you'd be a pro-life governor, then, if you're not going to readdress it? Because I don't think any other additional legislation should come forward. And, and obviously, this, this other piece on here, you know, prosecution of, of young ladies that come into the, the city to achieve an abortion, then I'm going to put them in jail. That's another campaign commercial that is out there. Now, you know, that's, that can't be any more further from the truth. I respect a woman's right to, to, for their own bodies, and there's nothing more than that. My personal belief is pro-life. That's what I believe internally. But am I going to uh, bring forward legislation? Am I going to nip away at legislation that changes that? I have no intention. It's a vote of the people, and if the people want to change it, I will support that. You did say, though, at one time, did you not, that you would support a 13-week uh, change by referendum. Did you not say that at one yes, time? Yes, I did say that. And do you believe that? No, I do not believe Why that. Why did you say it? Because I, um, have I thought about it more and, and, and evaluated not my political position or my campaign, as I valued, thought about it more personally, I, I support the law that the people approved. I support anything that the people approved. Um, you first said uh, uh, about the executive order that if it's in law that you wouldn't change it, which is not what an executive order does. And then you, you said you would repeal it. And now, why did you just a few days ago because say that you would Because of what, what has occurred in Alabama, and now other states are evaluating it. They're looking to prosecute young ladies uh, that are attempting to get abortion, and I, I don't think that's appropriate. I want the legislature to do that. And, and I, I stand by my statement on executive order. I don't think government should be ruled by executive order. It should be ruled by the people. So I'm going to get to the governor in a second. Final question then. So you're saying if you become governor, you would not propose or support any legislation to, uh, to weaken the pro-choice statute by, as you use your language, nipping away at it with waiting periods. You won't propose any I of that. I would support the vote of the people. Okay. Okay, John, he didn't answer the question that you proposed to him. But let me make this crystal clear to the audience here, to the audience that's watching. I support unequivocally a woman's right to choose. Her health care decisions are between her and her doctor, not her, her doctor, and Joe Lombardo. 
I totally support a woman's independence and her right to choose. You support parental notification? No, I do not. And so, I can tell you why I don't. Okay. Because a lot of the parental notification ones, unfortunately, these girls are uh, subjected to incest, to family situations. They've got familial situations where the response from the parent could be so extreme, it could put the woman's life in danger. And that's between that woman and her doctor. You used an interesting uh, word when you first uh, uh, stated your position. You said you unequivocally support a woman's choice to, to uh, how right. she deals with her body. Does that mean you support abortions at 28 weeks, at 32 weeks, at 30? That's unequivocal, Governor. This is, no, this is political theater, John. No, there are very, very few cases of late-term abortion. Very, very few cases. Oftentimes, the only cases that are late-term abortion are because of the health of the fetus, the life of the fetus, or the life of the mother. So I support a woman's, if you're a woman or you're supporting women's rights, there's, no, there's a clear choice in this race who has your back. But you, you, you're you're saying that but philosophically, that though, if someone did need a late-term abortion or wanted a late-term abortion, however you define late, 28, 32, 36 weeks, that you would support that woman's uh, John, right I to do that's, that? I think that's a question that is so uh, volatile that, that causes you know, a concern. I'd call Nobody it a bold is, question. Nobody, it's, that's not a bold question, John. That's something that's just not acceptable. I mean, I don't think anybody... I have never heard anybody advocate for a 35 or a 34 or 36 week abortion. But this is generally about a woman's right to choose. If you're unequivocal about it, she either has a right at 24 weeks or 18 weeks. She has a right at essentially any time, does she not? I do not think that she would have a right to make that decision at 35 weeks, if okay. that's what you're asking. Okay, all right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Governor Steve Sisolak, Sheriff Joe Lombardo, John Ralston, Jackie Valley, Elizabeth Thompson, Daniel Rothberg, Howard Stutz, Sandra Douglas Morgan, Aisha Goins, Elizabeth Koble, and John Ensminger for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us with pictures of little cowboy hamsters making eggs benedict or whatever else is on your mind at podcast at our original theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solos. And we'll talk to you next week. Um, you got, you got anything? Oh, shit. I'm at 2% battery. We're going to have to record this later. <laughs> okay, Godspeed. <laughs> Bye. Bye.